Welcome to the Revelation class. Today we are in Revelation chapter 3. We're going to start chapter 3 um, and uh, talk about the letter to the church at Sardis. Uh, this is the fifth of the seven letters. Um, again, the, the churches um, were real churches, but representing the state of um, the church from the beginning of the church until now. Um, today, um, this morning, we, we had the video of, uh, from Nepal where Sejun um, was, the, was the guy in the video, uh, the young boy, the boy at first who had to go to the monastery. Uh, but you, you could see how his family treated him. Um, in the country of Nepal. So uh, this, the video was from an organization called Voice of the Martyrs, um, which is a, uh, based out of Canada. Uh, but they, they ask, ask people to pray for a different country every day uh, uh, where, there's a per, where the church is persecuted in that country. And I'll just say that, that most of the time, the main persecutor of Christians um, in these countries is from their families and their local communities. Sometimes it is the case, there are some nations where it is the case where that if you convert to Christianity, you can be killed or imprisoned. And if you, um, if you witness, you can be imprisoned. But in most cases... Um, it is like we saw today. So the church that, uh, or the, the country that Voice of the Martyrs asks us to pray for today um, is the country of Bahrain, which is 99% Muslim. Um, and there are, they do allow um, people from the outside to come in and practice um, Christianity because um, they are a country that imports workers. Um, and so there are Christians in that country. But, but here's what it says. The main persecutor in Bahrain of Christians um, are families and local communities. But a gov- the government occasionally imprisons or harasses um, a new Christian. So... Um, that's that's the normal way that that Christians are persecuted across the um, the world. But but the countries where Christians are persecuted by the government with imprisonment, um, etc. Um, some of those some places like that, the, the, it looks pretty bleak. Now we would think it would look pretty bleak. Um, um, but in places where there is severe persecution, um, there is also church growth significantly. That's the case in China, where if you've been, been around, we've talked about this on Sunday nights, Sunday mornings, that there are about 130 million Christians uh, in China. Most of them have become Christians, or most the the. I mean, there were only about a million Christians in China before the communist government started persecuting Christians. 
And so the church often flourishes in places where there is persecution, even though it's, it's very serious and Christians are um, in danger. There's another organization called Operation World. Um, and so they ask us to pray for the church around the world, not always in a church that is suffering severe persecution. Um, and today uh, and yesterday, the country that they asked us to pray for with was Sri Lanka. Um, and the reason I'm, I'm bringing that up is that Sri Lanka um, has had a pretty, pretty substantial Christian population um, over the years. Um, it, it, um, it had a peak of 21% of the population is Christian. Now is it 7%? Okay, so, so it has declined. And it says the causes of this decline of Christianity are these. Nominalism. In other words, we're, a Christian, we're Christians in name only. Um, theological liberalism. Insufficient outreach. And lack of, of people that are indigenous to the country being, being Christians. So basically, the church has the church in Sri Lanka has lost its witness. You could say it's lost um, its uh, effectiveness because of compromise with the world, and that is the other thing that happens in times of persecution of one kind or another: is that churches compromise. Um, and so they lose their effective witness because when Christians compromise with the culture, Christians lose what's different from the culture, which is the message of, of Christianity. So if you think about that, think about things like that. So what is the state of the church in the world? Um, what is the state of the church? Well, um, it depends on where you look, right? Christianity is rapidly growing in places. Christianity is very biblically oriented in some places. Other places, Christianity is declining. Other places, Christianity is getting less orthodox, less right belief, less commitment to the word of God. So we'll just make it a little bit more narrow. What's, what's the state of the church in the United States? Which of those categories are we in with the church in the United States? Uh, and, and what does that say and where that we're headed, are we headed? So I looked up some statistics from, um, from, church, from church attendance, things like that. So um, Depending on the source of the research, you would say that, that church attendance in the United States is about, regular attenders is about 30% of the people in the United States. A little less than that if you say how many people go every week. A lot more than that if you say 
Um, how many people go once a month to church? So there is one interesting thing as I was looking at this that I was just actually quite surprised at. So as, as the church, it, church attendance has been going down. Regular attenders have been going down. In almost every demographic, almost every age group, except one. Millennials. Millennial church attendance that they describe as weekly church attendance. These are the people that were born between 1982 um, and 1996. Okay, we'll say that. So, Somewhere in that range. Are you in that group? No. <laughs> Millennials, anyway. That's the, that's the group where church attendance is going up in the United States. And it's, to me, that was surprising. So that means, I think it was, you know, like between roughly 30, 29, to around 40, that age group, church attendance is going up in the United States. Everywhere else, pretty much every other demographic is shrinking as far as, as church um, attendance. So, so what is going on with the church in America? Why is it that the church is shrinking in America? There's not very much persecution in America, really. There's, there's almost no real persecution in America, although there are some signs that that may be coming, right? Actually, I think they're pretty good signs that, that there will be persecution of Christians in the future. No, so we're not really declining because of that. I'd say that probably declining more along the lines of what, what I read to you from Sri Lanka. People are Christian in name. Um, there's, there's a large amount of um, theological liberalism, and there's a lot of compromise with the culture. And so as the church compromises with the culture... The church loses its witness. Well, the reason I'm bringing that, all that up is because that's, that appears to be the situation in the church that we're covering today in Revelation. Um, the church at Sardis. Um, there's been pressure to conform to society in the town. And as a result, um, the church is, um, you could say, dying, if you're being nice. Um, but the thing about persecution that doesn't necessarily happen in the culture at large that we need to think about, and that is with persecution, the persecutors usually give you an out like they did in the first century in the Roman Empire. You can keep being a Christian, just say Caesar is Lord. That's all you have to do. You can keep your Christian beliefs, just say Caesar is Lord. Just do that. They give you an out. Um, compromise comes in situations like that. Compromise also comes from pressure from employment. 
um, as we, we talked about last week, um, that, that there is, employers hold a really, really strong incentive to conform to the culture. Your wages. Right? And so that is the case in the first century as, as Jesus, uh, addressing the church in Sardis, is encouraging them to remain, I wouldn't even say, yeah, some remain faithful. But mostly the other part of this, which is, no, turn away from what you're doing and become faithful. Turn away from what you are doing. So uh, let's begin. I'll, I'll open us in prayer, um, and then we'll uh, dive into Revelation chapter 3. Father, we thank you that um, you are the king of this world and you are the king forever. Uh, and that all the things regarding the church, this is Christ's church that you have built um, and you have put these things in his hand, um, Lord, regarding your church. And Lord, I pray that as a church we would be we would remain faithful, that we would be committed to Jesus Christ, his church, and his word. Lord, we pray for your spirit to instruct us as we read from your word and comment on it. So, Lord, um, guide our process. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, like the other previous um, letters to the churches, this one starts out, Pretty similarly, this is, this is, uh, it's only six verses, so I'll just think I'll just read through it first, all the way through the letter, uh, and then we'll, we'll talk about it as we go. I'm re- going to read from the ESV. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, the words of him who is the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, I know your works. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember them. What you received and heard, keep it and repent. And if you will not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know what hour, at what hour I will come against you. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot out his name from the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So, notice first of all the description of Jesus Christ at the beginning. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and 
the seven stars. So those, are, those come right out of Revelation chapter 1, this description of Jesus. Um, and they are two of the things that are mentioned there. There's a long description of Jesus there. And, and each of these letters emphasizes different, different things um, about the symbolic representation of Jesus in Revelation chapter 1. So this is, this is really, really, really a good example of um, three ways that, that you can interpret the symbols in Revelation. Uh, it's, a, it's a really good a- a- example. This, just this. He who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. So there, there are three ways here that are, that are really plainly evident. One is that the symbol is explained. It's told you exactly what it is in Revelation. Somewhere else in Revelation, it tells you what that means. Um, The second one is the Old Testament tells you what it means. Um, So we know that the New Testament quotes the Old Testament quite often. In Revelation, there are more quotations and allusions to the Old Testament than in any other book in the New Testament. Let's go a little farther. There are more quotations and allusions to, and I'll give you an example of an allusion to here in a minute, to the Old Testament in Revelation than all of the rest of the New Testament books combined. So, What does that tell us? That tells us if we want to understand Revelation, read your Old Testament. That's what it says. Because that's what it alludes to so often. And here is going to be um, an example. So what are the seven spirits of God? First of all, all the other thing is that the numbers are symbolic. And the number seven means fullness, usually, or completeness. So what are the seven spirits of God? The complete Holy Spirit, you would say, right? So, but this is just a great example of, of this is an allusion to the Old Testament. Um, and I had... Uh, a few years ago, many of you guys know uh, Dr. Paul Rainbow. Um, the last time Revelation was, caught, was taught in here, he started teaching Revelation. Pastor Randy finished it. Um, but it's been, it's been a few years ago. I mean, a, I mean, a great biblical scholar, well-published, have no idea how he ended up at Sioux Falls Seminary back, back then. Um, but we were, he was far and away... Um, the best biblical scholar um, at that place, and and he's he's still in Sioux Falls. He's not he does, he's not at Sioux Falls Seminary anymore, or Kairos they call it now. But in the class, he mentioned, and this comes from his own personal studies, because you won't find this in most commentaries. You'd have to look pretty hard to find it in the commentaries, even ones that are on Revelation. Turn with me to Isaiah 11. This is a really good example. 
Isaiah chapter 11 is talking about the coming Messiah. Isaiah chapter 11, I'll read verse 1. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. A clear reference to the Messiah, to Jesus Christ. Um, And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest on him. So, count with me. Ready? The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The Spirit of wisdom. The Spirit of understanding. The Spirit of counsel and might the spirit of knowledge, and the fear of the Lord. The seven spirits of God. And if you look at that list, the fullness of the Holy Spirit, that you rests on Jesus Christ. He who has the seven spirits of God, the fullness of the Holy Spirit, and the seven stars. So the seven stars, this is another example from, um, of the way you can interpret it. Revelation, so go back to Revelation chapter 1. And this is, this is not uncommon in Revelation. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw on my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. So wherever you see the seven stars, in Revelation, be thinking, these are the angels, the messengers to the seven Churches. And the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So when you see seven lampstands, think of the fullness of the church. So, good examples of, of things in Revelation that, that you, we can, that Revelation clearly explains, or the Old Testament um, clearly gives you an indication of what it, it means. So, the one thing about this is um, these, the church at Sardis and the church of Ephesus had very similar situations. Um, even one of, the, even one of the, the descriptions of Jesus is the same. Here it is uh, from ver- chapter 2, verse 1. The words of him who holds seven stars in his right hands. There's the seven, same seven stars, an indication that, that this is a very similar situation in Ephesus. And we're going to return to that lately. So what is the situation? Well, uh, in Sardis, uh, the church at Sardis has a, has a very serious problem. Um, the end of verse 1. I know your works. That you have a reputation of being alive, but you are 
dead. So usually Jesus starts out with a commendation for the church. Tells them something good about the church. Um, uh, He doesn't do that here. He just says, you have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. And so this, this church appears to be in the most serious trouble of the seven churches. Um, and if you think about it, um, being dead is a pretty serious problem. So he has one thing where he commends them later that we read already, and we'll talk about it. Um, but this is like saying, by not giving them accommodation, because this is what you're supposed to always do, right? When you, before you have some kind of a correction to make, you, you say nice things about somebody. Unless you say, well, let's get right to the point. Um, and then you know. That this is a serious situation. So, and the need for correction is more important than nice speech, than, than building up the church at this point. So what is the situation? Well, the church has a good reputation. So, so Paul is probably, or John here is probably, excuse me, um, John is probably talking about something that they would recognize because the church of Sardis was one of like faded glory kind of a thing where, where they were, they, they had a reputation of being really a good city. Later on, um, it was a dying city. And so he's just mentioning that the church is like that. Your church, the church in Sardis is like the town of Sardis. You have a reputation that you're alive. You have a reputation, but you are dead. So what is a good reputation worth? That's the word used in, in, in the ESV. Um, it's, if you have New American Standard, I think it probably says name because that would be the most literal translation. You have a, you have a name that says you're alive or something like that. Um, but uh, the point is that it is their reputation. Name and reputation are closely tied together um, in, in Scripture. Well, how important is a good reputation? Well, I've got a reference there from, from Acts chapter 6, verse 3. You can turn with, to it if you want. I'm not going to read it. Um, but it's where uh, the church in Jerusalem is setting up the deacons, uh, the people to serve the church. And one of the things that they had to be, what they had to have was a good reputation. Um, it, qualifications for elders uh, in the New Testament include having a good reputation with outsiders, people from outside of the church. So reputation is important. Now, the words in both of those cases are not the same word. It's not name. It's witness. Um, It's the same word as witness. So a good reputation, a good witness um, that that you have to have. But the church has a serious problem, and it is urgent. But you are dead. Dead. You have this great reputation, but you are dead. Well, that, 
that does sound fairly serious. So death in, in the ancient world, um, was you, a person was usually considered dead when they quit breathing. Okay, so when you quit breathing, what, did, what do we know about that? You have four to six minutes when you quit breathing before you start to go brain dead. So being dead is pretty serious. Being not breathing uh, is pretty serious. So, is a reputation, is a good name, a value when you are dead? Um, You know, as you pass through life, your understanding of things changes. And as you see things like um, more and more funerals, um, more and more people towards the end of their lives. You know, you used to, one of the things that we like to say in our culture, I'm just not quite sure why. But I've thought about it. Well, he died doing something he loved. What difference does that make? I mean, seriously, what difference does that make? But here's another one that is pretty common thought in our culture. You know, what really matters when you come to the end of your life is what people say about you at a funeral, at your funeral. In other words, what was your reputation? That's pretty appealing to think about. I mean, most of us kind of value our reputation. And so we, you know, we hear that and we think, well, that'd be nice if somebody said that about me. But let's talk about it again. What good does that do? What matters isn't the reputation you carry. They had a reputation of being alive, but they were dead. So what difference does it make what your reputation is? Because reputations can be deceiving. You have a reputation of being alive. But you're dead. Reputations can be deceiving because what do we live in? We live in a world with people who can only look on the outside and can't look on the heart. Um, And so reputations can be very deceiving. So it's been probably getting close to a couple of weeks ago now already. It, it, It went on for so long, so it's hard to think it was that long ago. But the House elected a new speaker, right? His name was Mike Johnson. Um, and there were a series of others before him. But the one I remember was a guy named Tom Emmer because he was from Minnesota. And I think he was right before Johnson. And do you remember what his, the criticism of him was? He was a Republican in name only. He was a rhino. That was the big, that was the big criticism of him. Well... What we have in Sardis is people who are Christians in name only. Like so many places in the world that have a history of a strong Christian history, but are plagued by um, drift from that. I'm I'm just going to mention that 
Operation World a few, I think it was on Tuesday, and maybe more than Tuesday, um, had as the nation to pray for South Africa. Like 80% Christian. Plagued by violence. Plagued by rape. Plagued by racism. Plagued by economic in, injustice in that place. So what is that? Are 80% of the people in, in, in South Africa Christian? Probably not, right? We have a lot of that here, too. We have a lot of that in the United States as well. Have a reputation, and if you understand the, uh, the commandments, bear the name of Christian. So that, that comes from the commandment that says, don't take the Lord's name in vain. Don't bear the name of, Lord, of, of the Lord in name only. I mean, you need to be, if you're going to carry the name of Christian, you need to be a Christian. Because what happens is that the church loses its witness when, when those who claim to be Christian aren't Christian and are Christians in name only. So what can be dead done about a dead church? Well, there is hope um, for the church. Um, I'm going I'm to read the passage from John that I have in your notes. It's, it's John 6, 63. Um, Jesus, of course, um, says this. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words I have spoken to you are spirit and life. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. And Jesus has the seven spirits of God. Jesus has the fullness of the Spirit and the seven stars. So, he holds the power of the Holy Spirit, the one that makes alive, and he holds the, the power of the angels. He rules over everything. The power over the messengers to the church, the power over angels. Um, and so does that mean, does that mean that we should, there's, there's a song that came out a while ago um, called Let Go, Let God. Um, probably taken from the popular saying, um, that that I probably first saw on a bumper sticker, which doesn't seem like a very good idea. Um, if you are driving a car, to have a bumper sticker that says "Let go and let God," but that's probably where that song comes from, and it's probably taken from passages like um, Exodus. This is right before the children of Israel um, crossed the Red Sea. Exodus 14, it's probably taken from passages like this. Exodus 14, verses 13 and 14, um, where it says this. And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. 
For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. Then verse 14. I've mentioned before Sunday nights. We have this in our house on 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 a wall hanging. The Lord will fight for you. You have only to be silent. So that's probably where that comes from. Right? So would God have us, would Jesus tell us to, don't worry, I've got this, let go and let God. Is that what Jesus would do? Well, if, you, if you're still in Exodus, let's read a little further. I'll start in verse 14. Again, the Lord will fight for you, and you have only be silent. Then the Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry out to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. In other words, do something. I'm going to fight for you. Do something. And so, a little farther. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. I will fight for you. Do something. Do what I, what, what I tell you to do. And so, and, and we're all familiar with the passage about work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That's the Philippians passage that's mentioned on there, chapter 2. So how does the church like this, a dead church, um, work out its salvation with Fear and trembling. What would Jesus tell the church at Sardis to do? So, well, the best way to answer is that is what did Jesus tell the church of Sardis to do? Five things. First, um, this is from verse 2. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. So the church is described both as being dead and about to die. Um, which the second one sounds better, um, a little bit better. So there is hope. Um, not everything is in the church is dead yet. But he also says, wake up, right? Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. So the church had probably compromised Um, due to persecution or just this economic power that the city would have over you. Um, And so there is a pressure to conform, and we see that, we should see that every single day. There's a pressure for the church here um, to conform to the culture. And it is a, a strong Strong pressure. So I come from a background um, um, on the fire department, and, and I, th- I think I saw Bob over there. So there's Bob. He came from the fu- fire department background. So he will, he will recognize fire department wisdom when I say it, um, which um, you've heard of artificial intelligence. It's probably artificial wisdom. Um, anyway... <laughs> One of the things that you would, you would hear when you're a new person there, brand new firefighter, you got to go along to get along. In other words, if you want to get along here, you better go along with what we're doing. 
right? Another thing, you don't want to draw attention to yourself. So just keep your head down and do your job, right? Um, maybe that's, you know, that, I don't know that that's official fire department policy, but it was definitely the union's policy. <laughs> don't do anything to draw any attention to yourself. Just keep your head down and go forward, right? So Hebrews chapter 2 would say that's not such good um, advice for someone who is there trying to pull you into the culture there. Um, Hebrews 2, verses 1 to 3. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. This probably means what it means to wake up, right? From being, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received as just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? So strengthen what remains. You have a reputation for being alive. You have a reputation for believing, but do you really believe? You have a reputation for doing good works, but those works haven't been completed. They haven't been perfected. Um, and you are in serious danger, if you don't wake up, of not persevering to the end, which is what the message is for enduring persecution and enduring the culture. Endure to the end. Remain faithful to what Christ has told you. Remain faithful, maintain your faithful witness in the culture. So the other three, those were the first two. Wake up, strengthen what remains. Remember what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. That's very similar to what, um, the, especially the last two, um, what the situation was in the church of Ephesus, which I mentioned, mentioned earlier. This is Re, uh, Revelation 2.5. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen... Repent and do the works you did at first. And if not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand. That's the church, right? Remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. So repent. Either read the message, either remain faithful or become faithful. Or repent and become faithful. That's the message to um, the churches a summary of the message to the church to the seven churches. So what good does it do to remember and keep and repent? What good does it do? Um, a passage I've referred to a lot recently uh, because it is so striking, the words of Jesus in uh, John chapter 
8. I'll start reading in verse 30. Um, And uh, it says this. And as he was saying these things, so Jesus was telling that he was the light of the world, and as he was saying these things, many believed in him. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him. Got it? Jesus said to the Jews who had believed. Many believed in him. If you abide or remain in my word, you are truly my disciples. So if you're going to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, you have to remain in his word. That's what good it does to remember and to repent uh, and to keep it. Um, That's what it does. It makes you a disciple of Jesus Christ. So what will Jesus do if the church doesn't wake up? This is from the second half of uh, verse 3. I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. So that's an interesting, it's an interesting way to phrase it. I will come like a thief, and you will not know at one hour I will come against you, referring to the church at, at Sardis. So there's debate about whether or not this passage, this verse, actually refers to Christ's second coming or not. Um, is it more, is it referring to the second coming or is it referring to something like he said to the church of Ephesus, which is, repent or I'm going to come and take your lampstand away. Um, and so if you read the passages, um, you're familiar with this thief in the knife night thing. Um, let's just go to one of those uh, because I've got three examples there. I've got the three there, um, let's go to Matthew 24, um, starting in verse 42 to 44. So Matthew 24, this is the whole passage is basically about um, end times things, um, but 20, uh, 42 to 44. Interesting how it starts out. Therefore, stay awake. The passage we're in. Wake up. Therefore, stay awake. For you do not know what day your Lord is coming, but know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you, mu- you also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. So when you read through this letter to the church of, of Sardis, you would go, well, how could that not be referring to this? How could it be referring to anything but this? It sounds pretty much the same. Well, the argument is it's more like that Ephesians passage where... Jesus says, I'm going to take the, the lampstand away. It's more like that. Um, 
I think the I think scripture. I mean, if you if you read the New Testament, um, in my opinion, of and there's there's a great debate on that and great scholars on either side. So I'm not an important part of my opinion doesn't matter. Um, but it seems to me that if you keep reading in Matthew 24 where you just were, where we just were, it's pr- pretty clear that. He is talking about the end of the age here. Um, Because it says this, starting in verse 45. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is the servant whom his master will find doing so when he comes. Truly I say to you, he he will set him over all his possessions. And here's the part I think matters. But if the wicked servant says to himself, My master is delayed and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards, and the master of the servant will come at a day when he does not expect him, in an hour when he does not know, and he will cut him to pieces. In other words, when, when Jesus says here when I, that You don't know what hour I might come against you in the letter to Sardis. Um, When Christ's second coming is a coming for and a coming against. And I think with the balance of what Jesus taught in Matthew 24, it's pretty clear that this does, to me, it's clear that it does refer to the second coming. And he is threatening to come against that church. To see what we see at the end of Matthew 24. Because they have a reputation for being alive, but they are dead. So there is one commendation, um, and it is in verse 4 of uh, Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3, verse 4 says this. Yet you have a few names... In Sardis, people have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. So, there is, it's not completely, there are a few people in the midst of this church that is almost all in name only Christian, with a good reputation, but but not really um, doing what they should be doing. Um, but having their garments unstained um, probably means they have kept themselves free from the things in Pergamum um, and uh, the other the church that was right ahead of that, uh, Pergamum, and right after that, Thyatira, which was. They were the deeds of Jezebel and of Balaam, where he, they taught them to do sexual immorality and um, eat food sacrificed to idols, both of those symbolizing the same thing, uh, which is idolatry. So compromising with idolatry, which may or may not include actual uh, sexual immorality, but certainly includes idol worship. And so being unstained by, having unstained garments, um, having white garments, uh, means that they have may, remained faithful from the sins of those two churches. The faithful ones will be rewarded, verses 4b and 
5. Um, so the ones, the, the few who remain faithful will be rewarded in three ways. One, um, they will walk with Christ in white, and then a little bit later, be clothed in white. So um, for sure, I mean, you see that in Revelation um, 6, 9 um, through 11 and in another place where you have those who are clothed um, in white. And then it says, for they are worthy, which should remind us that why, how, how are people worthy? There's only one worthy, Jesus Christ. Well, they're walking with him. That's why they're worthy. They'll walk with him in white. They'll walk with him in white. So, and he who overcomes. So he who overcomes, or as it says in the ESV, he who conquers. That, that, that is used over and over and over and over and over again in, in Revelation, including in the letters to the churches, a lot of references. But it means those who, have, who remain faithful to the end. Sometimes at the cost of their own life. Those who remain faithful, often probably at the cost of their own life, that they remain faithful and, and become martyrs. So it says, I will never blot out or erase his name from the book of life. So does that mean that some names will be um, blotted out or will be erased? It doesn't necessarily mean that. Um, it looks like from the other passages in Revelation that those names are, are written permanently, um, those who are followers of Christ. And if you go other places in the New Testament, before the foundation of the world written, um, and so the fact that he says, I won't erase them, doesn't mean that he erases names, or I won't blot them out, their names out. It means they really belong in the book of life, those who remain faithful um, and walk with him. They will, so they will, their name will be in the book of life. So there are a few examples there from, from later revelation um, that talk about the book of life um, in your notes. And I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. So he'll walk with Christ in white. That's how he'll be rewarded. His name is, won't be blotted out of the book of life. And I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. No doubt, no doubt a, revel, a reference to Matthew 10. Jesus' teaching in Matthew 10, um, verses 32 and 33, where it says this. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will, also, I will not acknowledge him before my Father who is in heaven, but whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father in heaven. So that is a message for the church at Sardis to remind them that this is the case. If you deny me, if you cave into this culture and deny me, if you try to go along to get along, if you say, if you say I can hold these Christian beliefs 
and also say, Caesar is Lord, that I will not confess your name before my Father. But if you maintain, if you confess me, if you maintain that faithful witness to the end, you will be saved and you will, my, I will confess you before my Father and his angels. And by the way, he has his angels. They are the stars in his hand. So, so Jesus then closes this passage in Revelation um, with a very similar way, in a very similar way that he closes each of the seven letters um, to the churches. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So the question is, we can go over that each time and say, well, that's nice, it ends the same way. Or we can, or we can say um, this, well, what, what do I hear from the letter to the church at Sardis? What do I hear about being concerned about reputation if I'm dead? What do I learn about walking in white, keeping garments unstained? What do, what do I hear? So the church, the, the revelation... These letters written to the seven churches are written to the whole church throughout the ages and written for us. And Jesus at the end of it says, if you have, if you have ears to hear, listen. Listen. To what, the Spirit says, to the seven churches. Let's close in prayer. Father, um, again, we thank you for your word and the, uh, the warning and the encouragement that it gives us as we study it. Uh, warning not to let it go. Um, an encouragement to hold on, to strengthen what remains, to hold fast to your word. In time, in all kinds of times, in times of persecution, in times when the culture is threatening to swallow us up. So, Lord, I pray that you would help each of us to hold fast to those things. And I pray that, pray for the church in uh, this country, this local church in this country, that you would help us to hold fast as well to your word. Um, and Lord, uh, for those who are persecuted around the world and experience the very real things uh, that we see in other places in Revelation about being mar martyred for their faith. For the persecuted church around the world, we pray. We pray for them that they would endure to the end. In Jesus' name, amen.